I'm excited to dive back into 1 Peter. So go ahead and grab your Bibles. Let's go to 1 Peter. We're going to begin our time in chapter 1, really near the end of chapter 1, and then we're going to end our time and really try to center our focus in chapter 2, the first three verses. I need to start with sort of an apology this morning because the, the, the rate at which we're going through 1 Peter, I'm not, I, I don't love, but if I were to divvy up how many sections are in 1 Peter and give you, um, you know, give you equal time to each section, you would walk out with like five things and your mind would be exploding and, and it would just be too much, the information overload. Here's what I want to do. Let me, uh, let me begin this morning with just a quick word of prayer, and then we'll dive right in. Sound good? Father, we thank you for the fact that we have the ability this morning to, to observe your word and to look at it and, and see what it has for our hearts. Speak to us uh, through your word this morning. Help me be clear. Help me be um, accurate and faithful to your text, and we pray that it would do its work in each one of our hearts. It's in your name that I pray. Amen. So let, let, let me just briefly remind you of where we've been so far in chapter one. Um, if you remember me saying this early on, chapter one of 1 Peter is heavy, heavy, heavy in this, this uh, topic of salvation or the gospel. And so throughout 1 Peter chapter one, think with me and look back here as I go through this. In verses three through five, Remember, he says, Peter says, that God ought to be praised and blessed. Why? Because everywhere we look, we look at our regeneration, we look in our past, at what God has done in our lives by regenerating us, making us new, giving us new birth. We can be encouraged by that. Praise be to God for that. And then we can look forward, this future inheritance that's stored up for us in heaven, we can be encouraged by that. And then also our present protection, we're being protected by the power of God for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last times. You guys remember some of this? And then verses six through nine, he reminds us that how, one way we can suffer well and as we encounter various trials, trials of all shapes and sizes, they come in all types of ways, um, we, we can be encouraged by our salvation in that. He says, in this you greatly rejoice. And as we long for that final day of salvation, we can grab encouragement. In verses 10 through 16, if you remember, 10 through 13 is talking about the, the prophets of old who prophesied about this salvation that would be brought to you, Peter says. And then he, he mentions the preachers who preached the gospel to them, and, and that's how they were changed. And, and then the angels long to look into these things of salvation. And then he says, therefore, starting in uh, verse 13, let's just read it. This is where we were last time. This is where we tried to center our focus last time. Verse 13, he says, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all of your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. 
So we see here that, that salvation, when we think about our salvation and how great our salvation is, that shouldn't just remain in our heads as something we know merely, but, but this should leak into our lives and it should show up in our lives in ways that are, that are holy and godly. That, that's the connection he draws from our salvation and the privilege of the saved to the, the conduct of the saved. See, it's about where you fix your hope and it's about how you, how you conduct yourself day-to-day life, holy in all your conduct. And then, again, this is where I have to apologize because I want to look at verses 17 through 21, which is ground we haven't covered yet, but I'm really just going to offer a few comments on uh, verses 17 through 21. Now, read it with me. This, is, this could almost go with a previous section because it relates, again, to the conduct of the saved person. He says, if you address as father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves, there's the conduct, in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with, the precious, or with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world that has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So he views these these different things. He looks at first the father's impartial judgment. He judges someone, uh, each person according to their works, uh, whether, whether good or bad. He, he says, conduct yourselves in fear. Now, the way to think about this is not trepidation always that you're going to get clobbered by God, but it is a serious, sober reverence for God that ought to be, that, that ought to be a spur. Like if you think of a, a cowboy sitting on a horse who has the spurs on him, he, you know, he kicks the horse and the horse gets going faster. Uh, th- this is sort of a, it's a sort of a spur for our holiness. That God is going to judge each person according to their, uh, each one's work. So conduct yourself in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Respect God. Have, have, this, have this awe of him and respect for him. Don't be flippant about your life. Again, I, could, I, I would like to nail down more in this. So if you have questions, maybe catch me after. But then he says, verse 18, knowing you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold. Things that are going to fade away, you were redeemed with the blood of Christ. So there's another sort of spur for your holiness and your conduct. And then verse 20, he was, this is who shed his blood for us. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope were in God. It's a wonderful section. And I hate to bypass it so quickly, but... Um, Again, he's, he's given you this, this, uh, this reason to conduct yourself in holiness as a Christian. And then he sort of, in verse 22, this is going to be verses 20 through 25. This is going to be a little bit more pertinent to where I want to center our focus on today. Um, so look at verse 22. He's, he sort of narrows down on a particular aspect of your conduct. This is going to mirror what we've talked about back in the fall in 1 Corinthians 13, and that is love. So read with me in verse 22. 
Verse 22, he says, Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. So let's pause there for a second. The primary command in that verse is found at the end of the verse. Fervently love each other from the heart. That's, his, that, that's what he wants to start, start moving the conversation in the direction of. This love that we ought to be having, not just for people in general. Obviously, we ought to be loving people as Christians. I think we could all recognize that. We should be known by how much we love. But in particular, what he has in view here is love for fellow Christians, fellow believers within the context of perhaps their local churches. There should be love for the brethren that is evident in you. And this is fervent, constant, it's unrelenting love. This is something to pursue. This is what he's trying to draw his audience's attention to. And so, in essence, he's saying, your obedience to the truth, at the very beginning of the verse, he says, in your obedience to the truth, what's that talking about? I view that as salvation. Your, your, your obedience to the call to repent and believe in the gospel, you've purified your hearts. Why? For a sincere love for the brethren. Here's what he's saying. Prior to Christ, you did not possess the capacity you now have to love those around you. You had a different heart. You, you, now that you have been saved and, and, and salvation has taken root in your heart, now you have this newfound capacity for love, sincere love. In fact, if you remember 1 John, one of the primary markers of a Christian is that he loves those around him, right? If, if, if you see an unloving Christian in your midst, then you have reason perhaps to, to wonder about their profession, the, the sincerity of their profession in Christ. So, so now he says, now that you have that ability, you've purified yourself for a love of the brethren. Now that you have that ability, pursue it. It's not just something that happens at first, but, but pursue it. This is a constant thing that should be focused on. Fervently pursue love. So why should they cultivate this fervent love in their midst? Well, continue on. Again, moving kind of quick. Verse 23, why, for you have been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, so what's he talking about? Through the living and enduring word of God. So he points back to their salvation again. And he says, listen, when you were born again and you responded to the word, which is, is you find out in verse 25, the end of it, that's the gospel, the good news that was preached to you. When you responded to that, that word was an enduring word. It's an imperishable word. So the word that, that opened up the door for love to happen within the body is not a one-hit wonder. It, it should be, the effects of, of, of that word's work in your heart should be felt. The ripple effects of that love should be constantly felt in your life. That's why you ought to have a fervent, enduring, unfading love for fellow believers. Here's, here's a way to think about it. If you're a farmer and you simply plant, uh, you throw seeds down, how does this work? Yeah, right. Uh, Jeff is looking at me like, do, I, do you throw seeds down? Yes. Like a sower. Yeah. So 
So, so you're, you're, you're trying to grow a crop, but the seeds that we use, they're, they're perishable because the effects from these seeds, you may get a really good yield that year, but if you were to just leave it unharvested and just let it sit in your field, it would, it, it would quickly die, wouldn't it, if you didn't water it, if you didn't take care of it? It would die. Uh, the oldest tree, I looked this up this morning because I was curious. Um, the oldest tree in the world is one named Methuselah. I love that. It's uh, 4,800 years old. It's in California. That's an old tree. But listen, that's going to fade too. That's going to die off eventually. Everything that we know in this, in this world eventually fades, but but when he compares it to the work of the word of God in a believer's heart, that doesn't fade. That doesn't, that doesn't fade into the background. That doesn't die eventually. So the effects that are felt from the, the words work in your heart, that conversion of love, that new capacity should not die. You should continue to love. Do you see the connection there? And so that's the idea. And that's why he continues uh, in verse uh, 24. Look at verse 24. He compares the word of God to, to things that are planted. Like all flesh is grass. This is a quotation, by the way, from Isaiah chapter 40. All flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower fades or falls off. But what's he say in verse 25? But the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. So the word that started this new life in you should have its continued undying effect. It doesn't fade like other, um, other plants that we see and things like that, other things that we see around us. It, it continues to do its work in you. And that's why you ought to keep pursuing that love that it created in your heart. So with this, this in mind, think about this. Let's draw it back to the context of 1 Peter. One of the first things that I mentioned was that this is a church who has suffering in their minds. I mean, 1 Peter is about how you can remain a, or be, be a faithful Christian in light of the persecution that is at your doorstep. This may be true of all of us. We may have some, some long years to come of, of persecution, but, but it's at their doorstep. They're thinking about it. The Apostle James, at the, uh, at, at the time of this, this book being written, had died the year before. And soon after this, Peter and Paul both died, all from martyrdom. So, so, so they're thinking about this. This is the environment in which they're living. And, and, and Peter says, no matter what's going on in your life, no matter the situation you find yourself, the circumstances that surround you, pursue love. It's interesting because oftentimes we think we can only love if we're capable of loving. If, if things are going good in the church or maybe we're in the right frame of mind or we're not suffering ourselves, then, only then can we truly love. But Peter says, no, fervently love one another. And why would he bring the conversation here? Why would he bring the conversation here? It might be because in the face of persecution, 
it is all the more imperative that we are cultivating a tight-knit bond of love as the church. As the world tries to break us apart, we ought to be getting stronger in our devotion to one another, our, our love for one another. That's why this is important. It's all the more reason to love one another because you're being persecuted. So that the church is stronger than ever to withstand that onslaught that's headed their way. Okay. So with some of this in mind, with some of that kind of rattling around in your mind, check out chapter two. We're going to really center our time this morning in verses one through three. And you're going to notice some similar themes in verses one through three. I want to open it up really with this question before we start reading chapter two. I entitled this Sunday school, what is stunting your growth? What is it as a Christian that might be stunting or hindering your growth as a Christian? Have, have you ever had a season of life that felt like I'm, str- I, I, I'm, I'm not growing anymore? Or maybe your walk with the Lord has stagnated. It's, it's not lively as it used to be. What, what might have once excited you about God and, and God's word no longer excites you anymore. Or maybe I, you, or, you know, maybe you can look back over the last five to ten years and you don't notice a big change spiritually. You don't see the progression that maybe you'd been hoping to see. Then we know that as Christians, ideally, we should be growing. We should have the maturity that matches up with how long we've been in Christ. That's the truth. The Christian should always be growing, and the Christian should be able to notice this progression over the years. If you're not noticing any progression, if you've been in Christ for 30 years, and and you're still acting as you did 30 years ago, then perhaps there's a problem there. You ought to be growing as a Christian. And if you're not, maybe we should ask some questions. So I guess the place I want to start this morning is with this question. Do you desire to grow? Do you desire to see powerful spiritual change in your life? Continued spiritual transformation. There is nothing more sad than when you see those who have, who have been in Christ for 10 to 20 years still conducting themselves in a way that does not match how long they've been a Christian. This is like the 35-year-old man who still lives in his parents' basement, eating Cheetos, playing video games with his friends, and hasn't showered since November. There's something wrong here when you look at this picture. Like something isn't matching up here. So so how do you avoid falling in that category of stunted growth as a Christian? That's the question. What are ways that you can avoid your growth as a Christian being stunted or hindered? And this is going to be the question that Peter is going to help us answer today. So look with me in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. 
Let's read this together. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Peter says, Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies, here's the, here's the main command, by the way, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. What we find in this passage is, as Peter, in this main command in verse 2, to long for the spiritual milk of the word, what we find here are, are really two imperatives for activating boundless spiritual growth. Here are two things that have to be in place in order for you to, to access this boundless spiritual growth that we're called to as Christians. And the first one is, is found in verse 1. And that is to lay aside unloving attitudes. Lay aside unloving attitudes or even behavior or conduct. Lay aside the unloving. Here's the way this connects. Not to get too, uh, I always say this, not to get too greeky geeky on you. But the way this really works in these three verses is that verse one can be, can be viewed as a prerequisite to verse two happen. So if, if, the, if the command is to long for the milk of the word, what has to be laid aside first is these, or are these unloving attitudes. So that's the connection. These things, if cultivated, if, if, if what we find in verse one is not laid aside, then your appetite for the pure milk of the word will be spoiled. This is spiritual junk food that ruins your cravings for the word of God. It's not a surprise that he's turning his attention here because he's just urged these believers, we just read, to fervently love one another, to be fervent in that. What we're going to find here is the opposite of that. So he moves the conversation towards this topic of growth as a Christian. He begins with this command. In order for the longing and the growth to occur in verse 2, what has to be in place first is found in verse 1. And what does he say? He says, put away or put aside. Some of your versions may say putting aside. More of the force of the text is it, this is a command. Put aside these things. This invokes this in imagery of taking off a dirty garment. It's like wearing an old, dirty garment. And he says, take that off. Rid yourself of this, he says. Take it off, put it away, have nothing to do with that. And so, what does he say to put away? What does he say to take off? He says, all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. These are all concepts, I don't have to tell you this, but these are all concepts that have to do with relationships within the body of Christ and what might hamper unity in the body of Christ and, and what might destroy love in the body of Christ. The expectation is that we should love one another fervently. He says, 
Remove those things that keep that from occurring in your midst. Remove the things that take away from that, detract from, from fervent love. Because when you engage in these, not only are you in sin, but that sin is clogging up your spiritual system. It's ruining your appetite for the word of God. That's the idea here. You cannot and you will not experience true spiritual growth if you refuse to do what this verse says, to, to set these aside and let go of them. It's stunting your growth. Your growth will be inhibited as long as you engage in these things. It is worth saying in general that sin does this, not just the sin listed here, but sin in general does this. It keeps people from growing like they should. A tight grip on sin will stunt your growth as a Christian. If you often find yourself not only giving in to sin, but also embracing it and refusing to do away with it like a dirty garment, then you should expect that growth will be minimal in your life. You ought not be surprised when it stunts your growth. We know sin is poison to the soul. It's enticing. It's promising. It looks like it's going to be satisfying. But what it does is it wages war against your spiritual state. And so Peter wants to press in on this idea of loving one another. And he says, as long as these things, all things listed there, deceit, malice, hypocrisy, envy, as long as those things are fed, you're not going to grow like you should. And you're not going to long for God's word like you should. That's being, that's being blocked out. Spoiling your appetite. So if we want to truly grow in our walk with the Lord, if we want to truly grow as a Christian, it's imperative that we know what we need to avoid. So let's take just a closer look at a few of these terms here. He says, lay aside these things. What should we be putting off? First, he says, all malice. All malice. Malice is ill will towards someone else. This is bound up in the heart. This is a, this is a, a disposition that wants to see others hurt, possibly, suffer in some way. The malicious person may rejoice in the suffering of, one, uh, of another person. And though we never say it out loud, that can still, if we're being honest, that can still be in our hearts. And the fact that this is a common temptation to man and that Peter has to say this is striking proof of our depravity. That we want to see another person suffer. Maybe even another person in this body of Christ that he's writing to. The malicious person gets a hit off of someone else's misfortune it's a mean-spirited person. And Peter says, this has to be detected in your own heart. To whatever level or to whatever degree that's in your own heart, you must set that aside. It's clogging up your spiritual system. Put it away. Have nothing to do with that sort of, 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 of evil-heartedness, that, that mean-spirited nature. I can spend a lot of time on each one of these terms, but, but as long as you're preoccupying yourself with these things, your desire will be off of the word of God. You'll no longer be longing for the word of God like you should, and therefore you won't be growing. Next, he says, all deceit. 
So not only all malice, but all deceit. The word deceit essentially points to these creative and sneaky and crafty ways to enact evil against someone else. For instance, in leading up to the arrest of of our Lord in Matthew 26, uh, the leaders were plotting how they would arrest him and kill him to do him harm. And it says this, it said that they used stealth, or the same word here, deceit. They they were stealthy about it, how they may may kill kill, kill the Lord, kill Christ, how they would arrest him, suffer him harm. The one who is acting deceitful crafts a false presentation of reality so that they may get perhaps what they want, even if what they want is at the expense of other people. This can play out in so many different ways in the church. You're creating this false reality so that you perhaps get what you want and other peoples are injured in the process. These deceitful people are masters of social sleight of hand, getting you to look somewhere else while they take your watch. Metaphorically. (laughs) Or maybe really, I don't know. I've never had my watch stolen. This is incompatible with love in the body of Christ. Using others, abusing others, creating false representations of reality, perhaps blame shifting. When something is actually your fault, you want to blame it on someone else and try to create the reality in someone else's mind that it's actually this person's fault, that, that I failed. That's, that's all deception, deceit. And this destroys the mutual love that the body of Christ ought to be exhibiting And then he says hypocrisy. I like how uh, this is straight out of a a Greek kind of commentary set that I have. Uh, It takes all the words. It's actually something that I was bought for for my seminary graduation. I have these volumes where you can search the Greek word and get a lot of detail on it. And here's what Silva says. That's who compiled these dictionaries. He says... This, this word for hypocrisy, is the kind of behavior that attempts to cover up sin by putting oneself in a favorable light at the expense of others and of the truth. Putting yourself in a favorable light, this is close to deception, at the expense of others and of the truth. This person who is hypocritical is eager to hide their own sin And they're eager also to present themselves in a way that does not truly align with reality. In fact, this person may be severely critical of others in the body. They may be able to spot sin a mile away in someone else. But they're unwilling to deal with their own heart in these matters and and, and sinful issues. They're not worried about their own heart. They're worried about others' hearts. And, the, and, and, and perhaps they're trying to create this image. They're busy creating this image of themselves, that they're the holiest and that they're the best. And they don't struggle with sin like maybe this person over here does. They're quick to dogpile on someone who's suffering because of perhaps their sin has been found out. There, there, there's, a, there, there's this idea that they are preoccupying themselves with crafting this image of themselves. And it's no question that A longing for the word of the Lord cannot survive when you're preoccupied with these things. 
It's no question. He says then, envy, put away envy. Now, I think we all sort of get the, the, the concept of envy. It's when you look at someone else and they have better looks, um, they have more intelligence, that perhaps people praise them more, perhaps the, the, the talents that God has given them exceed yours, uh, perhaps people respect them more, perhaps they have more money, you name it. And you long to have that. That's, that's jealousy. That's envy. And not only is this a thief of your joy, because it's going to zap joy from you. And not only is this a thankless attitude for all the things you've been given, the gifts and talents you've been given. And not only is this pride, but left unchecked, envy left unchecked, will lead to an active tearing down of those people around you. You see how this is the opposite of love. This doesn't encourage love in a congregation. This destroys it. Because envy left unchecked is an active tearing down of people around you who you are jealous of to make yourself seem better in comparison. You see how this can work in our hearts. Boy, we get creative with these things. We want to make ourselves look better by tearing down what God has done for this person, what the gifts that, and abilities that God has given this person over here. Perhaps it leads to you trying to take from someone in some sense. And if you're envious, you might start to actively minimize other people in the eyes of others in an attempt to devalue them and exalt yourself by comparison. So if the list stopped there, you may be inclined to think, hey, I'm doing all right. I don't think, I, I can't think of anyone I'm envious of. I, I don't remember a time where I was particularly deceptive. But then he says, lastly here, put away all slander. All slander. This is the Greek word. Oh, here we go. Katalalia. All right, there's a mouthful for you. Kata meaning against. Literally, kata is the preposition against or, or down or metaphorically used against. Um, lalia is this from, it's from this verb meaning to speak. So what does that mean? You're speaking against someone. That's what slander is. You are literally speaking against someone. The, the literal definition is the act of speaking ill of another. This overlaps with the other terms in this list, but this is a devaluing of another person. It's putting someone else down. This is painting someone else in a negative light. And the truth is, in the church, the form that this most often takes is not face-to-face -face putting down. But in the church, sadly, this takes the form of gossip. Gossip. Speaking ill, slandering someone when they are not present. Talking to someone else about someone who maybe you don't like. And, and perhaps we rationalize gossip sometimes. Perhaps we say, well, 
what I'm saying is true. And, and maybe you tell the person who you're talking to, you can't tell anyone I said this. And so maybe you think, hey, as long as what I'm saying is true and it doesn't get out, then we don't have a problem here. That is, of course, not true. Gossip has been tolerated too long in too many churches. And so listen, this doesn't matter who you are in the church. You may be a pastor. You may be a Sunday school teacher. You may have been in this church since Moby Dick was a minnow. Okay? You, you may have a long history in any particular church. And guess what? None of it gives you an excuse to gossip or speak ill about a fellow brother or sister in Christ. None of it. Doesn't matter your, what, what sort of social circles you're in. The church, listen, is not your high school where, where rumors are spread, stories are told, rivalries are fed, and cliques are formed. This is like when Paul tells the Corinthians, are you not still fleshly? You're acting like ordinary men. You're acting like those who haven't been saved, those who haven't been changed. Put away strife and jealousies. Are you not walking like mere men? This is, this is, it couldn't get more from the opposite of fervently loving one another. And guys, listen, this is a check for my own heart, by the way. I'm reading this and I'm getting hit with it all week. All right, as I'm, as, I, as I'm trying to write this sermon, I'm just saying, man, how far do I fall short of this? Trying to degrade someone, devalue them in the eyes of others. This is not what we do in the church. It destroys the love that Peter's trying to cultivate in these churches. So the question is, as we, I need to kind of move on here, but to what degree are you, are you feeding these things in yourself? To what degree are these things true of you? Because to that degree is the degree to which you are inhibiting your own spiritual growth as a Christian. To that degree is how much you're destroying your appetite for the word of God because you're preoccupied with everything else. You're, you're, you're preoccupied with sin. And this is, this is blocking your growth as a Christian. We can't simultaneously have our hearts aimed at destroying others around us in the church and exalting ourselves and also crave for God's word like we ought to. We have to refuse to engage in these things. And then secondly, let's move on to verse, verses two and three. Now, not only do you need to, to, to lose the things, to, to, to take off the things that are hindering your growth, unloving attitudes, but then this is a very, you're gonna see it right in the text, you must long for unadulterated truth. So put aside all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander, and then read with me in verse 2. What should you do instead? Like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. And then look at verse 3. If you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. When you look at your translation, some of your translations will say, Long for the pure spiritual milk of the word, or 
pure spiritual milk. And some, I think the NASB says the pure milk of the word. So the, the word to be debated there is, is this word called log, logicon. And, and essentially what that is, it could be rendered spiritual. So that's why some of your versions say long for the pure spiritual milk. Or it could say, or it could mean word. It has obviously this, this root in this word that we all know, logos, means word. And so the question is, well, how do you render it in the English translation? Do you say reasonable? Do you say um, spiritual? Do you say word? And I think the idea, I think, I think it's rightly translated word because what did we just talk about a few verses earlier? The word of God, the enduring per, uh, word of God by which we grow. And so I think it's rightly translated word, but it could also rightly be translated um, reasonable because the word appeals to our reason, our, our rational functions. The word informs the way we think. And so what he's exhorting you to is to long for the pure milk of the word that appeals to your rationality, to your reason, the way you think about life, all of these things, and long to have your mind fed by this milk of the word. Long to have your mind nourished, your spiritual, your mind nourished. I love the analogy, especially with a newborn, um, that, that we have here. He says, like newborn babies. Many of you have experienced this. I've got one right there, newborn. Um, think about when newborns want milk. If a newborn is hungry, what does it do? Do what? It gets vocal. Gets pretty vocal, doesn't it? That's, that's putting it lightly. Yeah, it cries. It wants that milk. The other day I was with, uh, I was with Bo, our newborn, and Anna went for a run, and she was gone for maybe 20 minutes, nothing. But she takes off to run, he wakes up, and he's doing the whole, uh, it, was, it became very obvious that he was hungry because he did the whole pecking thing, you know? And it's like, dude, I can't help you here. I don't have the proper... So, then he started becoming pretty cantankerous, didn't he? He started becoming... I thought, uh-oh. Because, because what happens... What can you do in that moment? There's maybe the question. What, what, what can you do in that moment when a baby wants milk? You try to give it a toy? Uh-uh. Doesn't matter. Try to talk to it? Doesn't matter. Still crying. Try to rock them and uh, do whatever you can, but nothing matters. And the question is, why? Well, because they want that milk and nothing is an adequate substitute for that milk. They need it. There's a longing, there's a craving that they can't rid themselves of. It doesn't matter what you do. So the question that we have to ask here is, what do you crave? What do you long for as a Christian What do you spend your time desiring and thinking about and and doing? What are you passionate about? Is it God's word? Perhaps this is impeding your growth as a Christian. Your longing is not in the right place. That's precisely why it continues. So that, important words, so that, long for the word, so that, here's the result, by it you may grow in respect to salvation. There is a correlation between your, the, your craving and your intake of the word of God 
and your spiritual growth. Those things are linked. So, have you examined lately how much you are really longing for God's word? Do you devote time to to reading it? Do you carve out time for memorizing it, chewing on it, meditating on it? What about when you come to church? Are you excited about learning? Having your mind informed by the truth of God's word? Are you longing for that? Or do other things take you away from that? Take away from that excitement that should be characterizing you? I was reminded the other day, I had just written this point the other day, and I go and I listen to a sermon of Jack Hughes, and he reminds us that, listen, pastors can be boring, and we can't just blame the congregation because, because maybe we're boring and we're putting people to sleep. Okay, that's, that's true. That's absolutely true. I'm, I'm willing to recognize that pastors can be boring. All right? We'll put that out there. But on the other side of things, are you excited about learning when you come to church? Are you excited about what you might hear from the word of God at the risk of sounding self-serving as a, as a pastor? Let me just put something in perspective for you. When you come to listen to a sermon on Sunday, you're listening to a man who has packaged hours of study like hours, Rod doesn't spend an afternoon in the study and call it good, all right? He doesn't spend two hours trying to throw something together. I don't do that. Most pastors don't do that. Most faithful pastors don't do that. Um, but what they do is they spend all week digging into the nuances of God's word, trying to make it make sense for you to hear clearly. They're not speaking God's word, but they're representing it to you in hopes that you'll, you'll hear it and that it'll make a change in your life. The question is, how much do you long for this? Is your head in the game when you come to church? It's not, preaching is not something we do because of tradition. It's God's word being explained and made clear. And the question is, for you and for me, I still listen to sermons too, how engaged are we in this? That's the question. Are you longing to hear those things Because that's going to dictate, to some extent, your growth as a Christian. One of the commentators that I read, Edmund Clowney, he said, the same truth of God that gave them birth, he's talking about these churches that Peter's writing to, same truth of God that gave them birth also nourishes them. If the word of God is water to wash us, it is also milk to build better bodies in Christ. Christians must be, listen, Christians must be addicted to the Bible. It's true. So not only are you born by the word of God, but you're sustained and you're grown by your continual consumption of it. He says, notice this growth is with respect to salvation. This doesn't mean that Salvation is dependent necessarily on, um, on your growth, but growth is reflected by your salvation. And until that final salvation, I think this is more what he has in mind, that final day of salvation where we are really truly saved for eternity, 
And again, I'm not saying that you're not saved now, but, but you know what I mean. When that salvation becomes palpable, um, until then, you ought to be growing. And the way you ought to be growing is by continual consumption and longing for the Word of God. That's the message here. And then in verse 3, he incentivizes them to some extent by assuming something. Look at verse 3 with me. He said, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. He said, hey, you've experienced the kindness of the Lord already. You've been saved. All of us have, have gotten a small taste of, man, how great the Lord is. And he said, what, what really appetizes you even more is that the fact that you've had a taste of how good the Lord is, how, how, how kind the Lord is. So, so here's what you should do. If you've really tasted how kind the Lord is, go get more of that. How do you get more of that? In God's word. This, there's a compounding effect as you continue, uh, as you continue to, 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 to expose yourself to God's word. That should be a reason enough to obsess yourself with a true knowledge of God in his word because the more that you read in the pages of scripture how good God is, the bigger God gets in your mind, the more kind and loving he is in your mind as you open up the pages of scripture, the more you want. There's a compounding effect here. Your appetite for the true knowledge of him has already been stimulated, Peter says. And so go be fed by the word of the Lord so that you will taste more and more of his goodness. The more you taste, the more you want. Spurgeon has a quote that I've always loved. I think this loosely relates. He says, true Bible readers never find it wearisome. They like at least who know at least. And they love it most who read it most. So Christian, here's the question. Have your years in Christ, how long you've been a Christian, outpaced your maturity in Christ? Have you been growing lately? Can you look back and see not perfect, constant growth does look like this. We all know that. But, but growth nonetheless. If not, perhaps your spiritual growth has been stunted because you've stopped experiencing the goodness of the Lord in the pages of his word. Perhaps your love for him feels like it is flatlined because you've, you've stopped encountering him in his word and you're preoccupied by other things. And maybe your desire for, for his word has been boxed out and shrunk by other unloving, sinful desires like we talked about in verse one, preoccupying yourself with, with other things. Is that possible? I think it is. And this text gives clear answers. Lay aside unloving practices and long for the unadulterated milk of the word. Unadulterated milk. Milk that is free from additives. It's not watered down. It's pure truth. Long for that. And you will soon find yourself growing at the pace that God desires for you. Let me pray for us. Father, we do thank you for your word. And that by it, by the consumption of it, 
If we have clear consciences by the consumption of your word, we can grow by longing for your word. We're going to build our lives around that longing, put ourselves in the position to, to receive your word best. And the result is that we're going to grow all the way until that final day of salvation. Lord, we have tasted that you are good. All of us can, can say amen to the fact that you are good and you've been good to us. Help us remember that goodness and remember that a continual consumption of your word will reveal more and more of your goodness and your kindness. Help us be those who are addicted to your word. Help us be a church who loves your word and longs to hear it and have its truth inform our minds. So Father, I pray for this church. Help us all to remain engaged in hearing the word of God and applying it to our lives. It's in your name that I pray. Amen.